You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. Uh, before you leave today, there is a basket out in the front porch where you can uh, put a thank you or encouragement card for her. And I do encourage you to do that. Bless her with words of affirmation as she uh, departs our church staff. Now, she and Charlie are not going anywhere except maybe uh, the weekend uh, getaway here and there. They're still going to be a vital part of Mountain View Church. Charlie is one of our elders. He's going to continue in that capacity. So as they transition, uh, would you just uh, commit to pray for and with them? Now, one other thing. Luke, I want you to stand up, man. Uh, Luke Newton. Uh, graduated from Renewed Hope last year. Yeah. I want to tell you, I love this guy. Uh, I have seen the Lord work in Luke's heart and life over the past year. I've seen the Lord deepen his understanding of the word and of uh, faithful doctrine. I've seen this guy uh, grow to become a dear brother in the Lord who thinks very deeply about things. And I appreciate that so much. Luke, I want you to know, brother, we're praying for you as you enter this next chapter. And uh, I want to pray for you right now. And uh, you're headed out to Florida right after this, right? And so, uh, man, just know that this church family goes with you and that we'll be thinking about you and praying for you. So let me pray for you too. Father God, thank you for Luke. Thank you for the work you've done in his life over this past year. Thank you, God, for what you've got for him next. Because just like Brenda, this isn't the end of his story. This is only the turning of a page Father, to a brand new chapter, God, a chapter that you've already written, a chapter that he simply needs to faithfully step into. And I pray that he would do exactly that, that he would trust you with all of his heart, that he would hand over his plans and purposes to you, and that, Father, you would lead him very clearly, very directly, and very uh, personally and powerfully into this next stage of his life. And God, I really, uh, I, I really, I can't say enough regarding how excited I am to see what you do with him, how you continue to develop him, and how you uh, use him for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. So God, we offer our brother to you, give him safe travels today, and Father, not only give him safety in the days ahead, but help him deepen his roots further in the faith and in Christ Jesus And Father, to connect with a local church where he can continue to be rooted and built up and where he can use his gifts to build up others. Thank you for me. We give it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You know, Burke often says that as Christians, we don't celebrate enough. And I think that's a true statement. There is reason to celebrate uh, because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so we, we should take every chance we get. There's a whole lot of darkness in the world, and uh, we need to be people of light, right? We need to be people of light. And part of the way we do that is just celebrating the Lord's grace together. So 
Thank you all for being so kind and generous this morning. All right, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to be kind of rounding out uh, this little mini-series in our overall series on 1 Corinthians on the issue of gray matters. We started talking about this topic way back in chapter 8, verse 1, and if you've got a bulletin and you have the sermon notes, you'll notice on the back of the notes uh, a little uh, helpful diagram. At least it's helpful for me because I'm a pretty visual learner. And it essentially summarizes all of the things in chapters 8 through 10 and puts it into a little rubric for Christian decision-making. Now, I've uh, kind of held that in my back pocket these past few weeks, and I've kind of used it to shape my own thinking and to shape these sermons. And so I hope that it's a good kind of take-home for you to really kind of put shoe leather to these truths and help you understand what Paul's saying about how we make decisions as Christians. Now today, we're really going to kind of cap off this topic because here's the reality. When it comes to making decisions about gray matters or anything else in the Christian life, only one thing really matters. The glory of God. That's how Paul kind of summarizes this topic. And so we want to ask and answer the question this morning. Are you and I making everyday decisions about what we watch and about what we listen to, about what we eat and what we drink, about the kinds of things we do with our time with the ultimate aim of giving glory to God? Now, as we examine 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 11, 1, and you, if you highlight or underline in your Bible, you're going to notice that verse come up in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And it's one of, uh, one of those kind of cornerstone verses in the Scriptures. And I encourage you to underline it or highlight it as we come across it this morning. We're going to begin in 1 Corinthians 10.23. If you've got your Bible open, you can follow along. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is sold before you, eat whatever is set before you without asking any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I denounced because of what? Because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the Church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am 
Of course. Father, I pray that you just bless them. Very simple reading and hearing of your word this morning. As we prepare to dive in and explore this passage, I pray for open hearts and open minds. I pray for ready hands and ready feet that are willing and able and prepared to do whatever you ask us to do. And most of all, I pray that God, you would hide my words in yours. That whatever's said here today in these moments would be of you and from you. If anything is, I pray that your Holy Spirit would filter that out and help us to understand and to receive and to apply your truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So are you and I making everyday decisions with the ultimate aim of giving praise to God? The first thing I want you to see in this text this morning is Simply this. This is exactly what our blood-bought, spirit-wrought freedom is for. Again, the cornerstone verse of not only this section or this chapter, but this entire section of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is verse 31. So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, look, before we kind of dive into the specifics of what that means, we've got to ask and answer the question, well, what in the world is God's glory? God's glory, in essence, is the visible display of God's character and his worth. You might put it like this. God's glory is God going public. God's glory is God going public. Now, in the scriptures, God's glory is something that's always seen and savored. It's always something that is noticeable and enjoyed. Just think about Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 through 20. What did Moses ask to see? Moses asked to see God's glory. Listen to what the book of Exodus says. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Moses asked to see God's glory, and God responded by showing Moses his glory, the glory of his goodness, right? the glory of his great name, the Lord. Think about David. In Psalm 19, David saying that the heavens do what? They declare the glory of God, not with words, but by simply existing and testifying to the power of God. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Then you get to the New Testament. You get to the fulfillment of all of these promises and all of these stories and all of these pictures in the Old Testament. And John, in chapter 1 of his gospel, testifies.
testifies that he and the other disciples saw the very glory of God in human flesh with their own eyes. Listen to his words in John 1.14. And the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So now you come to this part of God's story, the part where we find ourselves, the part where we hear this command from the Apostle Paul to do whatever we do to the glory of God. And friends, here's what that means. It means to live each and every day for the sole purpose of putting the character of God on display in and through our lives. Moses asked to see it. David said the heavens proclaim it. John testifies that with the coming of Jesus, he and the other disciples witnessed the glory of God in human flesh with their own eyes. And now, as Paul exhorts us to do everything we do to the glory of God, the whole point is simply that. Whatever you do, do it with an eye toward putting the character of God and the worth of God and the goodness of God and the greatness of God on display in your everyday life. In Titus 2.10, Paul called this adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. Friends, this simply means that the life of an everyday disciple of the Lord Jesus isn't so much about do's or don'ts as it is about beautifying the gospel, as it is about allowing the Lord to make your life a testimony to his grace. You know, becoming a Christian is a lot like waking up from a dream and finding out to your delight and to your surprise that there's so much more to live for than yourself. There is the glory of God. There is making God known. There's making God's character and his worth seen. And in so many cases, growing as a Christian, Learning what it means to live every moment for God's glory is in a lot of ways like becoming a child all over it. A child who is constantly in all that his father would give him such a diverse world with wonders to explore in every direction. All of it's there for our enjoyment. All of it's there to take in and to share with others and to give praise to God for it. Now listen, you and I can't miss the context of this song because it's vitally important for our understanding of it. In other words, it's pretty easy to take a verse like 
1 Corinthians 10.31 and to rip it right out of its context and to maybe plaster it on our refrigerator or somewhere else where it's always in front of us. But we want to take the verse and we want to understand it in the midst of the context where it's written. So here's what you need to know, okay? Doing everything for the glory of God isn't simply about our enjoyment, though that's part of it. It's also about evangelism. Doing everything for the glory of God isn't simply or only about our enjoyment. It's also about evangelism. Now, this will become clearer as we unpack the whole passage, but here's what I want you to know. Paul is saying here that we're to live our everyday lives in order to put God on display so that our neighbors might be drawn to God through our transformed lives. Through our transformed character, through our everyday decisions to put others before ourselves. That's essentially what it means to do everything to the glory of God. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus said something similar. He said, we're to live in such a way that our good works point to the goodness of our Father and lead other people to give our Father glory along with us. That's why we're to live and breathe and move and make decisions the way that we are in the context of the world. For Paul, coming to the end of this section, we're reminded that true freedom and the ultimate purpose of the Christian life is simply this. Doing whatever it takes to love one's neighbor to Jesus. That's it. For Paul, Christian freedom and the purpose of the Christian life is to do whatever it takes to love one's neighbor for the sake of Jesus. Whether that neighbor is the neighbor sitting beside you in the context of the church, or that neighbor is the neighbor who lives down the street, or that neighbor is the one in front of you in the grocery line, or that neighbor is the one beside you in the workplace, whenever and wherever you encounter someone, is it your aim, is it your goal to do everything so that God gets praised not only through you, but that God perhaps might get praised through your neighbor if they come to faith in Christ? That's the Paul says that you and I, we glorify God most when out of love for him, we use our Christian freedom to lay down our freedoms. When we use our Christian freedom in eating or drinking or whatever in order to do what is most loving toward other people. Now, why does that glorify God most? It's really simple. We've talked about it all the way through 1 Corinthians so far. It glorifies God the most because it puts the humble, cross-shaped, self-sacrificial love of Jesus on this. When you and I lay down our freedoms to serve our neighbors for the sake of love, you and I put feet to the love of Christ. We show people what he gave up for us. 
And so that's really what our blood-bought, spirit-wrought freedom is for. Now, what does that look like? What does that look like when it's actually kind of a boots-on-the-ground thing, okay? The amazing thing in this passage is that Paul shows us. He doesn't just tell us to do all things to the glory of God. He actually shows us, okay? He says, we do things to the glory of God when we make everyday decisions with others in mind. Look back at verses 23 and 24, okay? Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things go out. Now, this... This is a perfect example of why it's important and why it is incredibly valuable to both read through and preach through and study through an entire book of the Bible. Because if you've been with us, you might be going, huh, I've heard this somewhere before. Turn back to chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 12. What does it say? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. That whole saying, that pithy saying, was probably kind of a mantra among the Corinthians. Well, all things are lawful for me. I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want. None of it's going to hurt me. And so Paul brought it up in relation to sexual immorality, and he brings it up again here. And he says, okay, fine. All things may be lawful, but remember, not everything is helpful. Now, we all know that, right? All things are lawful. You can eat a Krispy Kreme donut, but if you eat a whole dozen of them, it might not be too helpful even though it might be very, very good and also easy to do, right? Especially when the sign's on Especially when the sign's on Okay? But notice what Paul does. He goes on and he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So the question isn't necessarily, again, like we've asked and answered before, will this be okay for me? It's Will this be beneficial, not only to me, but beneficial to others? Paul, Paul says here that if we're doing everything to the glory of God, you and I should be seeking the good of others when it comes to our own personal decisions about gray matters. When Paul says, not everything is helpful, the word there literally means to bring together. So when you and I are making decisions, are the decisions we're making cultivating unity or disunity? He goes on to say these kinds of decisions should build up. When I make a decision about something and it has an impact on another believer around me, or it has an impact on a lost person in my sphere of influence, is it going to tear that person down or is it going to build them up? Is it going to help me bring them to Jesus? Is it going to help them grow in Jesus? Or is it going to push them further away? You see, is it helpful? Does it build up? This means exercising our freedom in Christ, not only to say yes, but to say what? No. To say no when the conscience of a weaker brother or sister is involved. And look, that's exactly the illustration Paul uses in verse 28. 
He says, if you go to someone's house and you're in, you've been invited to a dinner party by a lost person, you're free to go and do that. But let's say you sit down to eat meat. You don't have to ask whether or not that meat was sacrificed to idols because idols are nothing and it's okay. You can eat it. But if there's another believer there, a believer who has a weaker conscience who whispers to you, hey, uh, that was sacrificed to an idol. What do you do? You stop. You push back from the table and you say, oh, I apologize. I didn't know. And you choose not to eat. Now, notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 29. He says, look, I don't mean doing it because of your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? When you and I make the kinds of decisions where we're willing to say no to something for, for the sake of conscience, this doesn't mean we allow the consciences of other people to dictate to us what's right and what's wrong. Only the Word of God gets to do that. Only the Word of God gets to define for us what's right and what's wrong. In other words, you and I don't make up our minds about gray matters or about anything else in the Christian life on the basis of what other people think. But here's what Paul is saying. This does mean that you and I are prepared to do what other people think is right if it means their faith will be harmed if we don't do it. Does that make sense? It means in situations where we're dealing with other believers who have weaker consciences, we do certain things and we don't do certain things in order to build them up in the faith. Not because our consciences are captive to what they think, but because we love them. That's it. Because we love them. It also means being careful not to do anything that's going to unnecessarily offend an unbeliever and cost you an opportunity to share the gospel with that person or to unnecessarily offend a believer and disrupt the precious unity of the church. Now, I'm not going to go back and rehash the details because we talked about this when we walked our way through chapter 9, but notice what Paul says in verse 32. He says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Paul's essentially saying that you and I are called within the bounds of Christian freedom and within the bounds of what the Bible says is okay and not okay to do our very best not to offend people when it comes to cultural sensibilities and sensitivities and conscience issues. Now, does that mean we're to bend over backwards to never offend? See, again, this is where reading a whole book in context is really, really helpful, because if you go back to chapter 1, Paul said that the gospel itself is what? Offensive. It's a stumbling block, and it's a hindrance. And notice what he does in this passage. He brings up the same two groups, same two groups again, the Jews and the Greeks, and he adds the church. So Paul's not saying we should never be offensive because the gospel itself offends the pridefulness 
of human beings. Paul says we should let the gospel be offensive and we should try to be as inoffensive as possible. I said it before and I'll say it again. We should do our very best to not be jerks for Jesus. That's all that means. That's all that means. The gospel's going to cause offense. Don't add to it. <laughs> right? That's all Paul is saying. The gospel's going to cause offense. Don't add to it. The goal is to let the gospel to, to do all of the offending and to be as accommodating and understanding and non-offensive as we can out of love for our neighbors so that you and I actually have an opportunity to share Christ with them. Often we can put up roadblocks, we can put up barriers without even knowing it that prevent us from sharing the gospel. And isn't this exactly how Jesus lived his life? He conducted his entire ministry with the express purpose of doing good to others. He ate with prostitutes, he ate with tax collectors and with sinners. He touched the lame and he made the well, he healed the sick and he cast out demons. In fact, and I've used this verse over and over and over again. It's exactly why he came to earth in the first place. It's why he came to die. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for him. Friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. When it comes to Christian decision-making, when it comes to doing everything for the glory of God. You and I, we, we put the self-sacrificial love of God on display when we choose to lay down our rights for the sake of others in order to build them up. That's what the glory of God looks like in an everyday life. But Paul goes on to say that you and I do things for the glory of God when we give thanks to God in our everyday activities. When you and I receive all of God's good gifts with a thankful heart, you and I do all things to the glory of God. When we acknowledge God's generosity and God's kindness, when we enjoy what God has freely given, Paul says, this is exactly how, in the midst of our everyday lives, you and I give glory to God. This is this is what Paul said the Corinthians were free to do when he said that they could buy meat sold in the market. Why? Notice what he quotes in 1 Corinthians 10 26. He said, Go and buy meat sold in the market, and don't worry for the sake of conscience, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's quoting from Psalm 24, verse 1. Reminding them that idols are nothing and that the Lord made and the Lord provides everything for our enjoyment. God owns it all, in other words. And God has freely given it to us for our enjoyment and his praise as a result. Look, Paul said the exact same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He 
said, for everything created by God is what? What does it say? Are you looking at it? For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So here's the bottom line. If I can say a prayer of thanksgiving to the one true God for the food on the table, then I'm generally free to eat that food. Now, this applies to more than food, though. You know, the Holy Spirit instructs us to do all things to the glory of God, which is why um, the famous uh, British author G.K. Chesterton wrote these words. And I love what he says. He says, you said grace before meals? All right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera and grace before the play and the pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching and painting and swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. what it looks like to live with genuine thanksgiving. This, this too is where the rubber meets the road when it comes to doing all things for the glory of God. Thanksgiving acknowledges that everything is a gift. Everything. There is no thing that you and I possess that was not freely given to us by our good, good Father in heaven. Now look, sadly, the absence of genuine thanksgiving is evidence of a darkened heart and a foolish mind. Listen to Paul's description of the loss in Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or what? Give thanks to him. But they became futile in their, in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Did you know that the sin-darkened heart and mind refuses to honor God as God and refuses to give thanks to God and to acknowledge that God is the provider of everything we have and everything we enjoy? Praise God, friends, that our lack of thanksgiving did not hinder God from loving us enough to save us. Amen. Praise God this morning, friends, that the fact that we all possess in one way, shape, or form ungrateful hearts did not prevent God from showering us with his kindness. That ought to make every one of us in this room realize that he will forever be undeserving and he will forever be more gracious, more kind, more gentle, and better to us than we could possibly ever deserve or imagine. Right? Praise God. Man. And praise God. Praise God, friends, for the resurrection power of Jesus that now courses through your veins and my veins, that makes it possible for us to obey these words with joy and delight. And whatever you do, in word or deed, 
Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. God's grace makes it possible for you and I not only to hear those words, but to receive them now not as an oppressive command, but an invitation. Friends, whatever you do, because you've been shown immeasurable kindness, do it all now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Folks, that's an invitation. That's an invitation to live into your identity in Christ. Certainly, this is one of the ways that we put the generous character of our God on display. On display in a world where everyone wants to take credit for what they have and everyone's working just a little bit harder, just a little bit longer, and sacrificing just a little bit more to get whatever it is they have and want more of. A thankful people have a lot to say to a greedy culture. Right? One of the ways we testify to the Lord's goodness. And finally, here in this passage, you and I, we do things to the glory of God when we put Jesus front and center in our lives. Look at the very final verse, which kind of turns the page into chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Who was the number one person in Paul's life? That's not a hard question. Jesus. Jesus owned Paul. And Paul was grateful to be a servant of his master, Christ Jesus. And here at the end of this passage, he says, look, I want you to imitate me as I follow Christ. Just as Christ is first in my life, I want him to be first in your life. I want you to follow him like I am. The Lord Jesus was front and center in his life, and the Holy Spirit wants it to be front and center in our lives, too. You see, here's the thing. When you and I talk about gray matters, and whether or not we should or shouldn't do a certain thing, we're not really talking about principles to put into practice so much as we're talking about a relationship with a person that's meant to be lived out in the context of our everyday lives. We're really talking about coming alongside Jesus and learning from Jesus how to do all things to the glory of God. We're talking about learning from Jesus how to love other people through our decisions and how to give thanks to God in all things. Did you know that Jesus, through the presence of his Holy Spirit, is your teacher? He is your rabbi. He is your king and your Lord. He commands you, invites you, calls you to yoke up with him and to learn from him how to do this. Here's the good news. More than just a teacher. We're talking about learning from a gentle saint who's kind enough to pick us up and dust us off and help us to start all over again when we make a mess of it. 
And make no mistake about it, you and I will make a mess of things. <laughs> right? Did you notice that Paul instructs us to do everything to the glory of God? When was the last time you did everything 24-7 for the glory of God? You know what that means? That means you don't just need a teacher. You need a savior. Just like me. You and I need Jesus not only as teacher to show us the way, we need Jesus as savior because all of us have lost our way. What does Paul say in Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. You and I have all fallen short of putting God at the very center of our lives and loving others like God would love them and giving thanks to God for every gift he's ever given us. You and I fall woefully short of that. And that is God's righteous condemnation upon each and every human being. But I'm thankful that that particular passage does not end there. Right? Thank God for verse 24. Romans 3.24 says, Though we've all fallen short, all are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Though you and I have fallen woefully short of the glory of God and though we can never earn our way back into right relationship with him or climb high enough on that mountain to do enough for God's glory to earn his love. Guess what God did for us? He met us right where we were. He met us right where we were and though we can never earn it, never deserve it, and never do enough for God to give us his stamp of approval. Jesus lived a perfect life for the glory of God alone. He died in our place. So you and, I, you and I can be made right with God. And that as a what? Gift. By grace and grace alone, God sets our feet on solid ground. By grace and grace alone, through the resurrection of power of Jesus, the Holy Spirit now enables us to live for the glory of God. Words you and I could not before. And this morning, as we come to this table, you and I come and here when we receive the bread and the cup, we're reminded of that grace, and we're reminded of that gift. We're reminded of the presence of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's commitment to make us more and more and more like Jesus. You know, this, this precious meat, which we talked about last Sunday, right? This precious meat is a sign and a seal of Christ's friendship with us. Friends, it's a gift from the Lord Jesus to you and to me. It's a, it's a tangible, tasteable expression 
of God's love for us. Through the bread and the cup, Jesus comes close to us and he invites us to eat with him at his table. Every time we receive it, we hear or we should hear the words of Revelation 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will do what? I will eat with him. That's the invitation today, folks. Jesus is here. He wants to enjoy this sacred gift in this special time with us. Are you and I prepared to let him in? Are you and I prepared to receive him? And here's the reality. There's no earning a seat at this table. It's freely given to all who have a real relationship with Christ. This is what he says. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money to buy anything, come, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's the invitation. Now there's another side of the story too. In coming to this table, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, you and I participate with Christ. Which means, as he declares his friendship to us, when we receive the bread and the cup, we declare what? Our friendship with him. As he declares his love to us, we declare our love to him. As through this meal, Jesus says, I love you. What do we say? I love you too. I love you. That's why this is a sacred to be shared between Christ and only those who know him. Only those who have a relationship with him. As the little wafers and cups are passed around this morning, I want to encourage you to do something. If you don't have a real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you not to take one of the little communion cups. Instead, take hold of Christ. Take hold of the invitation to come, repenting, turning away from your sin, your desire to live your life for yourself and say, Jesus, I'm done with all that. I want you. But if you are a child, I want you to know something this morning. You don't have to let your weakness keep you from this day. You don't have to let the fact that you've messed up this week, and I know you have. You don't even have to tell me. You don't have to let the fact that you've messed up this week keep you from this table. Because you didn't earn your seat there in the first place. And you're not going to earn your way back. Jesus is pulling out a chair for you this morning. And he's saying, come eat with me. Come share in my body and my blood and be reminded of my love for you. 
unchanging. It's forever. And through the special meal, he wants to remind us. So I'm going to invite the band up. And the folks who are going to be serving. We're going to enter into a time of uh, intentional reflection.